you go to Washington, D.C., you will see this monument, this memorial of the Korean War right there on the mall in Washington, D.C. Just a little history on the Korean War. I am Korean by descent, and uh, this has a special place in my heart. Uh, Shortly after World War II, the Soviet Union and the United States carved up the Korean Peninsula as to who would rebuild which section, and the Soviet Union took the northern part of the Korean Peninsula, and the American forces took the southern part, much like East and West Germany was divided after World War II. And there were two different ideologies, as you would imagine, that were promulgated, obviously in the north, a communist mentality, Marxism, and in the south, capitalism. And in July of 1950, the North Korean forces, with the support of the USSR, broke through into the southern part of the Korean Peninsula. My mother was born in January of 1950, and she was about five months old at the time, and my grandparents were living on the northern part of the Korean Peninsula. And the forces had broken into the southern part, and then you remember Douglas MacArthur in October of 1950, remember your history books, did the offensive and essentially pushed the North Korean forces almost up to the Chinese border. It was then that my mother got deathly ill, and they needed some medication, and so my grandparents decided that they would have to go south to get medication for my mother. My mom tells this account, she said all her parents, my grandparents took with her, was a Bible and a diaper bag. They knew someone in the American army, so they went south, And it was shortly thereafter that the Chinese pushed the American forces down and the border was locked in 1953 between the North and the South. The 38th parallel, the demilitarized zone, the DMZ is right there. And you were not able to go between the North and the South anymore. And it's quite remarkable because if my mom had not gotten sick she would have been trapped in North Korea and likely would have been shipped off to a concentration camp, as many Christians were under the new regime, and I would not be your pastor. (laughs) I would not exist because my parents met in the United States. You know, the ravages of war, uh, by the way, um, uh, there was a ceasefire that was agreed to, but there was no peace treaty after this war. So technically, North and South Korea are still at war today. And the ravages of war reach its tentacles and affect millions because ethnically, North and South Korea are the same, just two different ideologies. And my mother's cousin, during the war, went to the south and had to leave behind for different reasons 
their precious six-year-old daughter. They hoped that she would be able to join them later, but the border was closed, and the last time they saw their daughter was when she was six years old, six years old and they were not able to see her until 40 years later. Can you imagine? And they were only able to spend a little bit of time with her 40 years later. She had grown by this time, had her own family, and just broke uh, this relative of my mother's heart that they had left a child back in North Korea. It's a picture of North Korea and South Korea today. You know, we live in a world that is longing for peace. Amen? And because of sin, we have, on an international scale, a lot of conflict. And it's not only on an international scale, it's in the family as well. We experience, unfortunately, between husband and wife, between parents and children, between family members, perhaps that have not spoken for years because of conflict, because of baggage and trauma that has been experienced. And peace is something that our world is longing for. Billy Graham was asked this question, Dear Billy Graham, I guess you can say I burned my bridges with my family more than 20 years ago. They weren't perfect, but I have to admit, I was the main problem. Now I'm older and hopefully wiser. I'd like to get back in contact, but they aren't interested. Should I just forget it? J.H., and this is Billy Graham's response, Dear J.H., no, you shouldn't forget it, both for their sake and for yours. Admittedly, it may not be possible to restore your relationship with your family, but that shouldn't keep you from trying. The Bible says there is joy for those who promote peace. Which brings us to the focus of our study today in our series on the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This passage is not indicating how we become a son or daughter of God. This is indicating a characteristic of what it is to be a son or daughter of God. We should be peacemakers, amen? We should be individuals that are initiating restoration and harmony, whether it be in the family or the church or community. Christians are to be peacemakers. Now, I want to touch on very quickly here in the beginning because it seems that there is a contradiction between what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. And you remember another place in Matthew chapter 10 verse 34 where Jesus seems to contradict what he has just said five chapters before. You remember the statement, do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. What is Jesus talking about? Is he contradicting himself? First, he says, look, we should be peacemakers, we should be reconcilers, We should be bridge builders, but here Jesus says, look, I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. 
Well, Jesus is not promoting disharmony in the family. To be very clear, Jesus is establishing the reality that in the hierarchy of values, we should place our relationship with the Father, with God, at the highest place, not secondary. Now, I come from an Eastern perspective, and in the East, in Asia, there is something that transcends even truth. Do you know what that is? Family, relationships. That is transcendent. And so, for the sake of family, truth is secondary. Jesus turns it on its head and says, look, our relationship with God is primary, and the result sometimes of following God is that our families, unfortunately, will not accept our decision and will choose to disown us. But we should remain faithful regardless. Here he's talking about the results of faithfulness, and ultimately our faith in God should trump even our earthly relationships. Here is a quotation from John Piper. He says, in other words, you must love peace and work for peace. You must pray for your enemies and do good to them and greet them and long for barriers between you to be overcome. But you must never abandon your allegiance to me, meaning God, and my word, no matter how much animosity it brings down on your head. He goes on, purity takes precedence over peace. Remember the beatitude preceding peacemakers. It is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God afterwards. Blessed are the peacemakers. Purity takes precedence over peace. Purity is the basis of biblical peace. Purity may not be compromised in order to make peace. In other words, it is not peace at all costs. It does not mean compromising our values and our principles, but it does mean that the posture of the Christian is towards reconciliation. Amen? It is towards restoration. It is towards harmony. Very quickly, I want to look at some Bible texts about the nature of peace. Christ is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. God has called us to live in peace, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Peter says, seek peace and pursue it, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. And Paul goes on in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. I like this definition from one dictionary of a peacemaker. A peacemaker is a person that tries to make peace, especially by reconciling parties that disagree, quarrel, or fight. Now, isn't it interesting, in the Western world, it seems like we like to fight, doesn't it? Especially this time of year, in the election cycle. I promise I won't talk about politics from the pulpit, all right? Have mercy. Here we go. All right, here's John Stott. It is the devil. It is the who? It is the devil who is a troublemaker. 
It is God who loves reconciliation and who now through his children, as formerly through his only begotten son, is bent on making peace. So the posture of the gospel is for reconciliation, is for restoration, it's for harmony. The posture of the devil is for rebellion and disharmony. Now, with that in mind, we've just prefaced it with the notion of purity takes precedence and not compromising our values. But we need to recognize that in application of being a peacemaker, this is a characteristic of what a Christian should be. Now, there are three applications of how we can look at the notion of a peacemaker. The first one is in personal conflict. In other words, I have a conflict with a brother or sister, a misunderstanding. You know, we go through this all the time, don't we? I look forward to heaven when there won't be any misunderstandings. But personal tension, discomfort, and conflict. That's one place where we can be a peacemaker. The other is a mediator. In other words, we personally are not involved in a conflict, but there are two parties that are at strife or war, and we come in as the peacemaker, as the mediator, to attempt to bring harmony to the situation. So that's the second area that we can be a peacemaker. And then the other one is as a witness. We experience God's peace, and then through witnessing to others, we are an ambassador for Christ to bring peace to others, the peace that passes all understanding. Now, we can spend a lot of time on each of these, but for the sake of our emphasis this morning, I want to focus in on the first one, personal conflict, personal harmony. I think it's the one that we go through the most, because not many times are we called upon to be a mediator between North and South Korea, right? But in terms of personal conflict, there is something that God is calling us to be and to do as a Christian. One commentator puts it like this, a peacemaker is a bridge builder. Peacemaking tries to build bridges to people. It does not want the animosity to remain it wants reconciliation. It wants harmony. Now, in terms of our personal conflict, there are a couple ways that we can initiate reconciliation. One of the ways is when we have hurt others. Do Christians hurt people inadvertently? We do. And there's this one former University of Massachusetts Medical School dean, his name is Aaron Lazier, he has a book on apology. That's the title. It's on apology, and according to Dr. Lazier, he says that one of the most profound interactions two human beings can have with one another is the art of apology the art of apology, and he says that an effective apology, as Lazier puts it, is an act of honesty, an act of humility, 
an act of commitment, an act of generosity, and an act of courage. And I believe that as Christians, one of the most powerful witnesses that we can have is that when we are wrong and when we have intentionally or not intentionally hurt someone, we should be the reconciler. We should be the person that reaches out. And I know how it is when there's a little tiff between myself and another individual. And perhaps it is equal on both sides, or you think it is so. And there's something about it where you're always waiting for the other person to say, I'm sorry first. Isn't that right? And then it's amazing. As soon as they say, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry too. I was just going to say that. But there is an, an art to apology. And I believe that Christians should be individuals that by the grace of God have mastered the art of sincere apology, especially when we are wrong. So I, I did some reading, and there's a whole bunch of literature and research, and so I tried to distill it down. This, I want to be as practical as possible because I believe that one of the ways that we destroy our Christian witness is not apologizing properly. I thought something was going on, but praise the Lord, it's not. All right. So here are some three essential ingredients of a sincere apology. And so this is the one of the ways that we can be a peacemaker. When we have wronged someone, when we have hurt somebody, number one, accept responsibility. You know, there's a little jujitsu that we do when it comes to apologies. We say, I'm sorry that you were offended. <laughs> In other words, the issue is not me, it's really you. You're so sensitive and fragile that you got offended by something that I didn't mean to do. I'm sorry that you were offended. That's accepting no responsibility. The issue is them. Accept responsibility. We need to own it. We need to say, look, I'm sorry, and this is what I did. I'm sorry that I hurt you. Number two, very quickly, no excuses. You know, we kill an apology when we say, I'm sorry, but. <laughs> you, you ever get a, a letter back from someone that you applied for? You put in an application for a job, and you read the letter, and it starts out, thank you, David Shin, we appreciate you. You have many wonderful qualifications. We think that you'd be great for this job, but <laughs> do you need to read any more? You don't have the job. <laughs> what the but does is that you're going one way, but then it reverses everything, and you're going, you're going this way. So when you give an apology, you say, I'm sorry, I give my heart earnest apology, but... You've just reversed everything. If you hadn't said that, I wouldn't have done this. 
No excuses, total ownership. See, this is, this is really where it comes from. When we receive from God in the beginning of the Beatitudes and we come to him broken, a sinner, and we are humbled and the Lord builds us back up and recreates in us the image of God, it affects our interpersonal relationships. That way we can come to other people totally owning what we have done without any excuses. Christians, should be masters of sincere apology. One psychologist put it this way, most apologies tend to be excuses or justifications that neglect to address the feelings of the person to whom we are apologizing. Number three, very quickly, remember the goal is to make the other person feel better. Amen. Not yourself. Do not apologize until you actually do understand how they are feeling. I found this to be profound when I was researching this. Do not apologize until you actually do understand how they are feeling. If you can't put yourself in their shoes, your apology will ring false. How many times have we been hurt and the other person says, I'm sorry? It just feels so cheap. But real healing takes place when we have empathy. When we take the time to understand how we have wounded the other person and then give the person opportunity to express if they do desire how much they have been hurt and wounded by what we have done. And then when we internalize that, when we feel it, when we understand it, then we can apologize. There is a kind of a bell curve of apology. If we apologize too soon before we've empathized, it comes across cheap. If we apologize too late, there's issues there. But when we really get into the other person and feel what they have felt, that is when healing and restoration can take place. I found so many times in interpersonal conflict, when I've been hurt or the other person's been hurt, so much of the process of healing is empathy, is understanding what the other person has done. One way that we're a peacemaker is to apologize sincerely when we have hurt others. The other way that we are a peacemaker interpersonally is to forgive when we have been hurt. This arguably is much more challenging, and Jesus doesn't make it any easier. Matthew chapter 5, same Sermon on the Mount, verse 43 through 45, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be, what does it say on the screen? That you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Bible scholars have seen that the pattern in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 45 is similar to the way that this beatitude is written. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Being a peacemaker means initiating forgiveness for those who have hurt and wounded us. I think of Ronnie and Anita Smith. When Libya was going through a turbulent time, Ronnie and Anita decided that they would give up their comfortable life in the United States and go to Benghazi, Libya to minister there. And this is what they said, and I quote, we saw the suffering of the Libyan people, but we also saw their hope and we wanted to build and partner with them for a better future. So they went there to minister to the people of Libya and Benghazi. Shortly after they arrived, Ronnie was out running one morning and an unidentified man shot Ronnie. He died. You can imagine the heartache of Anita Smith. And Anita wrote an open letter, not knowing the identity of the person, the attacker that had killed her husband, and these are her words. Anita addressed her husband's attacker with the words, I love you and I forgive you. How could I not? For Jesus taught us to love our enemies, not to kill them or seek revenge. This is mind-blowing to think about. Someone that had been wounded so deeply and yet, by a miracle of grace, became the initiator in reconciliation. I think of Rochelle, the story hit the news and became a media sensation when Rochelle, the night before she was about to get married, was out with a bachelorette party with her girlfriends. After the party, they decided to go swimming. They went to the side of the pool and started to swim around, and, and Rochelle got up out of the pool, and one of her friends, inadvertently in fun and playfulness, bumped and pushed Rochelle into a side of the pool that was very shallow. She fell in head first, hit the bottom of the pool. She was instantly paralyzed from the neck down. The night before her wedding. It hit the online community, and in recovery, Rochelle was asked about her relationship with her friend that had pushed her into the pool. And these are the questions that she was asked. Do you guys still talk? There's no way you two can be friends anymore, right? And this is what she said. I love her, and I have no grudge. What happened was an accident. In the aftermath, Rochelle refused to give the name of the friend that had pushed her into the pool. It was to protect her friend from the media rage and from her losing her anonymity. 
paralyzed for life and the work of grace in reconciliation and renewal. One more, I think of that Mennonite community in 2006, October, when Charles Roberts walked into that Amish school, held individuals hostage. By the end of the carnage, five children lost their lives and Roberts committed suicide. You can imagine the devastation of that Amish community And at the funeral of Charles Roberts, the murderer who committed suicide, the Amish community showed up to comfort the widow that had lost her husband. It didn't stop there. After the funeral was done, the Amish community rallied together and fundraised and gave financial support to the widow of the individual that had murdered their children. The depths of reconciliation. This is what God calls us to be. Amen? Maybe there's someone in your life that you have not talked to for years. Maybe there's somebody that you are estranged from, it is a broken relationship. I'm not arguing against the notion that it takes two for reconciliation, but God is calling us as a community of faith to extend out and be vulnerable and to be as much as is humanly possible to do our part in reconciliation, in harmony and renewal, to make that first phone call. To write that email, to write that letter, and say, you know what? I love you, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. The grace of God is not only a vertical relationship, it flows out into the horizontal as well. And it's time that we as a community of faith put down our swords and extend to each other the arms of grace and the arms of fellowship. For Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and the daughters of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for grace. We thank you that you give us grace that is unmerited and undeserved. And as we experience this, it flows out in grace to others. Father, if there's anyone in our lives that we have hurt, help us to reach out. Help us to reconcile. Father, if we have been wounded deeply by someone else, Father, give us grace to be able to forgive. Lord, we long for heaven. We long for a community 
when there will be no more misunderstanding and no more strife. But Father in heaven, help us in the here and now to build a community of faith that will be about restoration and reconciliation. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.